Ordinarily, it would take about two weeks to journey from Mount Sinai to the land of Canaan, if you were doing so on foot. But as we'll see tonight, it took the nation Israel 40 years. Someone asked me the other day if I knew the directions to get to a field over in Norcross. I'm pretty lousy with directions. As a matter of fact, I can get lost going home from church. And I said to the guy, I can tell you how to get to heaven. But if you need directions anywhere else, you need to ask my wife. Kathy is the one member of the family who's good with directions. But even I would have had a difficult time turning a two-week walk into 40 years of wandering. There must have been more to it than a bad sense of direction. We start to see the problem in chapter 11. Now when the people complained, it displeased the Lord. For the Lord heard it, and His anger was aroused. They say the odds of being struck by lightning are 1 in 1.9 million. Unless you've been grumbling and complaining about the provision of the Lord. And then the odds increase dramatically. When these people grumbled, the Lord got angry. And look at what happens. So the fire of the Lord burned among them and consumed some in the outskirts of the camp. Perhaps all of the malcontents had huddled together to roast Moses. Instead, the Lord roasts them. When the Lord bowls a lightning bolt, it's always a strike. Then the people cried out to Moses, and when Moses prayed to the Lord, the fire was quenched. So he called the name of the place Taborah, which by the way means you may get burned, because the fire of the Lord had burned among them. God had mercy on the surviving complainers and whiners, but here's the warning to us. If you keep up a disgruntled attitude, you too may get burned. Well, after this fiery judgment, you would think that the complaints would end, but not so. Now the mixed multitude who were among them yielded to intense craving. So the children of Israel also wept again and said, Who will give us meat to eat? Now notice from where this murmuring arises, the mixed multitude. Remember, this was the group that was traveling with Moses. These were the people who were not pure Hebrews. They may have included a few Egyptians, maybe some foreign slaves, maybe some descendants of the Hebrews who had intermarried with the Egyptians. But they were people who had been influenced by Egyptian culture. This mixed multitude enjoyed the principle of freedom, but not at the price of faith. They wanted freedom, but they were used to the comforts of Egypt. Think of the prisoner who longs to be free but isn't really ready for freedom's responsibilities. I mean, he's still comfortable with three square meals a day and a warm bed that he gets in prison. Well, th this was the mixed multitude. This was their attitude. They, they hated their bondage, so they said, but they liked the, the free food and beverage that came with it. You know, they had this attitude of one foot in Egypt, one foot out of Egypt, Always remember, it requires no faith to be a slave. And the same is true for those of us who are enslaved to sin. 
You know, there are some folks who hate the bondage. They hate the bondage they're in to drugs and sex or a dead-end job or an abusive relationship. And though God promises them a land of joy and blessing, they prefer the familiarity and the convenience of where they're at and the safety they feel where they're in. They fear the unknowns that faith would bring. You see, the mixed multitude, they wanted both the safety and the security of Egypt and the blessings of God, but that's not how it works. If you want the life that God promises you, you've got to believe enough to leave behind the old and embrace the new. Well, this mixed multitude murmured, We remember the fish which we ate freely in Egypt, the cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, and the garlic. But now our whole being is dried up. There is nothing at all except this manna before our eyes. Manna. It was actually a derogatory term. Its translation is, what is it? That's what manna means. What is it? God always referred to the manna as the bread from heaven. In fact, Psalm 78 verse 25 calls it angel's food. Manna was the first angel's food cake. Manna was God's wonder bread, the first health food. It was the perfect food for a desert diet. But you see, the problem with our fallen, our corrupt nature, is we get tired of even perfect gifts. That's sad but true. Eventually, even miracles become monotonous, and we begin to complain. And after a time, this miracle manna was not enough. Verse 7 gives us a physical description of the manna. Now, the manna was like coriander seed, and its color like the color of delium. In other words, it was kind of a grainy texture, and it was white in color. The people went about and gathered it, ground it on millstones, or beat it in the mortar, cooked it in pans, and made cakes of it, and its taste was like the taste of pastry prepared with oil. Now this word pastry does not refer to a cream-filled donut. That is not what it means. Manna didn't taste like Krispy Kreme. Pastry literally means a cake baked on a hearth. And evidently the manna really didn't taste very good. And in other words, it didn't taste... It didn't have a good flavor to it. It tasted kind of bland. And so they tried to prepare it by jazzing it up in different ways. They, they prepared ground manna and sometimes mashed manna and sometimes fried manna and sometimes baked manna. That's what it says. They cooked it all these different ways. It's interesting. Deuteronomy chapter 8 verse 3. You might write that down and refer to it later. Spoke to Israel. God humbled you, allowed you to hunger. Notice this. And fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man shall not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Lord. Evidently, God never wanted manna to taste like Krispy Kreme. He designed it to be bland in taste. For God was teaching Israel that real joy is not found in the physical realm. It's found in the spiritual realities. Yes, God feeds our bellies with the basics, but He delights our spirit with His delicacies. God meets physical needs, but He caters to spiritual taste buds. It's God who can satisfy our spirit. That's far more important than filling our bellies. 
Verse 9, and when the dew fell on the camp in the night, the manna fell on it. So every morning the Hebrews would wake up and they would gather that day's portion of food. Rather than go to the grocery store, the grocery store came to them. What a setup. A divine dominoes delivered every single day. Perfect food for desert life. They had it made. Verse 10, then Moses heard the people weeping throughout their families Everyone at the door of his tent, and the anger of the Lord was greatly aroused. They had it made, but they still complained. Moses also was displeased. So Moses said to the Lord, Why have you afflicted your servant? And why have I not found favor in your sight? And you have laid the burden of all these people on me. Did I conceive all these people? Did I beget them that you should say to me, Carry them in your bosom as a guardian carries a nursing child? To the land which you swore to their fathers. Am I their mother, Lord? Where am I to get meat to give to all these people? For they weep all over me, saying, Give us meat that we may eat. The Hebrews were grumblers and complainers. We're tired of this manna. How about some meat and potatoes? God, give us a little variety. And Moses had about all that he could handle. It's interesting, God's going to deal with these people's complaints, but first he deals with Moses. For it's interesting that he too starts to grumble and murmur and complain, but Moses complains about the people. The people complained about the menu, but Moses complained about the ministry. Everybody was sucking sour grapes. And notice what Moses tells God. I am not able to bear all these people alone. Because the burden is too heavy for me. If you treat me like this, please kill me here and now. If I have found favor in your sight, and do not let me see my wretchedness. Boy, Moses was a little depressed, I would say. (laughs) Hey, let me say, Moses realized that the only thing worse than a disgruntled people is a disgruntled pastor. And he would rather fall dead than to disappoint God in his ministry. The answer, though, for Moses was not death, but delegation. It's death to the attitude, i got to do it all myself. I'm the only person who can do this right. You know, in management, they say if someone else can do a task 80% as well as you can, then you need to let them. Often we get overwhelmed with a job because we refuse to delegate tasks to capable people. So the Lord said to Moses, Gather to me 70 men of the elders of Israel, whom you know to be the elders of the people and officers over them. Bring them to the tabernacle of meeting, that they may stand there with you. Moses needs these 70 men so he can delegate responsibility, so that he can gain their help in the leadership of Israel. God continues, then I will come down and talk with you there. I will take of the spirit that is upon you and put the same upon them. And they shall bear the burden of the people with you that you may not bear it yourself alone. Now the easy answer for Moses was delegation. But this answer really caused another problem. For you can't share leadership and ministry with just anyone. It's fairly easy to find warm bodies to whom you can delegate tasks and assign duties. But it's much harder to find people who will assume responsibility. 
and who will help you shoulder the burden with the same heart that you shoulder it with. Moses needs more than just glorified gophers. He needs men who will think the way he thinks and care the way he cares and sacrifice the way he sacrifices. Moses needs men who will catch his vision. And God knows, Moses knows, that that requires a work of the Holy Spirit. You see, it's one thing to get a person to fill a spot on a schedule or to find a man or woman who can step up to a certain task. But it's a whole other thing when you ask someone to step into the circle of responsibility. That requires a work of the Holy Spirit in their heart. And that's what God is setting the stage for. Moses gathers these 70 elders to the tabernacle. God is about to fill them with the Holy Spirit. But first, God tells Moses how to solve the present crisis. Verse 18. Then you shall say to the people, Consecrate yourselves for tomorrow, and you shall eat meat, for you have wept in the hearing of the Lord, saying, Who will give us meat to eat? For it was well with us in Egypt. Therefore the Lord will give you meat. You want meat? You're going to get it. And you shall eat. You shall eat not one day, nor two days, nor five days, nor ten days, nor twenty days, but for a whole month until it comes out your nostrils and becomes loathsome to you because you have despised the Lord who is among you and have wept before him saying, why did you ever come up out of Egypt? Don't tell me God doesn't have a sense of humor. If Israel wants meat, then God will send them so much meat, it'll eventually come out their snout. By the end of the 30 days, they'll have so much meat, they'll be sick of it. Reminds me of Morgan Spurlock. Heard that name? The guy who ate nothing but McDonald's fast food for 30 days. Did you hear this story? Spurlock says he gained 25 pounds in those 30 days. And at the end of the month, he said his liver looked like that of an alcoholic. He did a documentary on this entitled, Supersize Me. I thought that's pretty good, Supersize Me. And Spurlock commented, I rarely go to McDonald's anymore, not only because of the health precautions, but because I actually don't enjoy the taste anymore. Hey, after 30 days of eating Big Macs, Spurlock is no longer loving it. And neither were the Hebrews. They ended up loathing the quail that God had sent. You want meat, you'll have meat. For 30 days they ate quail and they got sick of it. You know, real fulfillment comes not from getting more, but from wanting less. When will we learn that? Real fulfillment comes not from getting more, but from wanting less. Satan loves to breed discontent. This is his chief weapon. All is fine with God's wonderful manna, with the provision he's giving us, until the enemy plants a suggestion. If you were only driving that car, a 2006 manna, or if you had just married her, that good-looking manna over there, not the bland manna you got. <laughs> or if you could just find another job, you know, some real, something that paid some real manna. Understand, the Hebrews got what they wanted, but then they realized that what they wanted wasn't what they really wanted. 
Ever happened to you? Happens to all of us when we think we can gain fulfillment from the things of this world. The key to happiness is learning to be content with what God provides. Real contentment comes not from getting more, but from wanting less. Verse 21, And Moses said, The people whom I am among are 600,000 men on foot. Yet you have said, I will give them meat that they may eat for a whole month. Shall flocks and herds be slaughtered for them to provide enough for them? Or shall all the fish of the sea be gathered together for them to provide enough for them? I mean, a month of meat, a month of Big Macs would require a big miracle from God. And then the Lord said to Moses, Has the Lord's arm been shortened? Is there anything out of God's reach? Does the Lord have a torn rotator cuff? Has he had Tommy John elbow repair surgery? Has the Lord somehow injured himself and now he's incapable of reaching out for a miracle? Never underestimate the power of the long arm of the Lord. Now you shall see whether what I say will happen to you or not. Verse 24. So Moses went out and told the people the words of the Lord. And he gathered the seventh men of the elders of the people and placed them around the tabernacle. Then the Lord came down in the cloud and spoke to him and took of the spirit that was upon him and placed the same upon the 70 elders. And it happened when the spirit rested upon them that they prophesied, although they never did so again. They spoke in an ecstatic burst. They spoke the word of God. Two men had remained in the camp. The name of one was Eldad and the name of the other Medad. And that's what my kids call their father, Medad. Me dead. Me. Me dead. It wasn't as funny as I thought it would be. <laughs> and the Spirit rested upon them, and now they were among those listed, but who had not gone out to the tabernacle. Yet they prophesied in the camp. And a young man ran and told Moses and said, Eldad and me dad are prophesying in the camp. So Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant, one of his choice men, answered and said, Moses, my Lord, forbid them. Now that, that's an interesting reaction. Joshua was appalled that Eldad and Medad were filled with the Holy Spirit while still in the camp, still among the common people. His concern was, what, is, what if everyone thinks that he or she can receive supernatural power from God and, and be filled with spiritual gifts. What if the word gets out that that can happen for anybody? I love Moses' response. Are you zealous for my sake? In other words, do you think I want to monopolize God and his gifts? To the contrary, and I love Moses' statement. Oh, that all the Lord's people were prophets and that the Lord would put his spirit upon them. Rather than view the power of the Holy Spirit as the exclusive property of an elite few, Moses longed for the day when all God's people, not just a few, would be empowered by the Holy Spirit in exercising supernatural gifts. And guys, Moses was way ahead of his time. 
in the Old Testament, select people at select times were empowered by the Holy Spirit. But today, Moses is longing, his wish has come true. For today, each and every one of us can be filled with the power of the Holy Spirit, if we'll just ask. Verse 30, And Moses returned to the camp, both he and the elders of Israel. But this time, Moses had the spiritual help that he needed to oversee the nation. Now a wind went out from the Lord, and it brought quail from the sea, and left them fluttering near the camp. About a day's journey on this side, and about a day's journey on the other side, all around the camp, and about two cubits, close to a yard, above the surface of the ground. God said, you just wait, you just see, I'll bring the meat, and here comes this amazing flock of quail. You know, it's interesting. Quail was actually an Egyptian delicacy at the time. And what's ironic is these Hebrews are now going to be eating better in the desert than most of the Egyptians will be back in Egypt. Shows the extent of God's provision. And evidently the quail flew in rather low so the people could sort of stand out there and swat them out of the air with a baseball bat. They were just clubbing them and knocking them down. It was kind of like taking batting practice, you know. Verse 32, and the people stayed up all that day, all night, and all the next day, and gathered the quail, and he who gathered least gathered ten homers, and they spread them out for themselves all around the camp. And I know they used baseball bats, because look at what they gathered, ten homers. Probably saw that coming, didn't you? Actually, a homer was a dry measurement of a little bit more than a bushel. The idea of spreading the quail out around the camp indicates they were drying the meat out in the sunshine. They were apparently making quail jerky. Verse 33. But while the meat was still between their teeth, before it was chewed, the wrath of the Lord was aroused against the people, and the Lord struck the people with a very great plague. And it was because they became greedy. I mean, they were making jerky and acting like jerks. Rather than just enjoy the meat, they spent 36 hours. Notice, look back in verse 32. They spent all day, all night, and the next day, they spent 36 hours straight gathering quail. Evidently, they didn't trust God to provide it again. They thought while they had it, they needed to get as much as they could. And because of their unbelief, God sent a very great plague. So he called the name of that place Kibroth Hadavah because there they buried the people who had yielded to craving. And Kibroth Hadavah means graves of craving. And sadly, this is not the last time that someone has died because they failed to say no to a craving. Always remember, crave and grave rhyme for a reason. Pursue a craving without restraint, and you'll end up craving what becomes a judgment to your soul. Verse 35, from Kibroth Hadavah, the people moved to Hazaroth and camped at Hazaroth. They continue to move northward now toward Canaan. Chapter 12. Then Miriam and Aaron spoke against Moses because of the Ethiopian woman whom he had married 
for he had married an Ethiopian woman. Now, Exodus 2 tells us that Moses had married a Midianite woman named Zipporah. It's possible that by now, Zipporah had passed away. And therefore, he had remarried this Ethiopian. Now, what constituted their complaint against Moses, we're not sure. But it probably had something to do with the fact that his wife was an Ethiopian. And since Ethiopians were black-skinned people, it's possible that Aaron and Miriam were guilty of racial prejudice. They objected to an interracial marriage. Why is this Jew marrying a black woman? Imagine racial prejudice all the way back to the days of Moses. Guys, racial bigotry didn't start in the South during slavery. It can be traced back to the beginning of the races. As soon as anyone noticed that humans come in different hues, it was suggested that one color was better than the other. Always remember, racial prejudice is not so much a skin problem, it's a sin problem. Verse 2 tells us, So they said, Has the Lord indeed spoken only through Moses? Has he not spoken through us also? And the Lord heard it. Now, now get the picture. Israel grumbled about the menu. We want meat, not manna. In the next chapter, they're going to grumble about the mission. God wants them to go into the land. Here they grumble about the messenger. What right does Moses have to lead us? And Moses' own family questioned Their brother's God-given authority. It's sad, but church members today, nothing's really changed, guys. People today still complain about these same three issues. The manna, Moses, and their marching orders. The menu, the mission, and the messenger. Now, seldom do people come right out and complain. But it goes on in little huddles. In little private conversations. In telephone calls. You go to lunch with a friend and you have roast pastor. You question decisions that the leader makes. You question his motives even when you lack the facts. It's so easy to be a Sunday after church quarterback. But listen carefully to the last phrase of verse 2. It should scare the stuffing out of you and me both. And the Lord heard it. I might not hear about it, but trust me, the Lord will hear it. Verse 3. Now the man Moses was very humble, more than all men who were on the face of the earth. What a statement that is. And it's clear to me that this verse was probably added later by Joshua. It would be odd for Moses to say this. He'd be boasting in his own humility. But here's the reason Moses was trusted by God with such vast authority. It's because he was humble. No one had more clout with God or authority with man than Moses, yet he never forgot where it came from. He never forgot that without God, he was a failed deliverer. He was a simple shepherd. Moses never forgot what he was without God, and therefore he could be trusted with incredible authority. Since Moses' sole desire was to glorify God, he doesn't even defend himself. It's God who comes to his defense. 
Verse 4, suddenly the Lord said to Moses, Aaron, and Miriam, Come out, you three, to the tabernacle of meeting. So the three came out. And let me warn you, if you've been murmuring secretly about a man of God, there may come a day when you get called out to give an account. Then the Lord came down in the pillar of cloud and stood in the door of the tabernacle and called Aaron and Miriam, and they both went forward. Then he said, Hear now my words. If there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, make myself known to him in a vision. I speak to him in a dream. I mean, this was the typical way that God spoke through the prophets, in visions and in dreams. But Moses was different. Not so with my servant Moses, he says, for he is faithful in all my house. I speak with him face to face, even plainly, and not in dark sayings. And he sees the form of the Lord. Why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? God spoke to prophets in visions, but to Moses visually. Moses communicated to God face to face. As a friend talks with a friend, he saw God's glory with his very own eyes. And God gave Moses access into his presence that no one else was allowed. Moses says to Aaron and Miriam, how dare you? Question Moses' authority. Verse 9. So the anger of the Lord was aroused against them, and he departed. And when the cloud departed from above the tabernacle, suddenly Miriam became leprous, as white as snow. She was struck with the highly contagious disease of leprosy. And I hope we realize that murmuring and negativism and critical attitudes are also Highly contagious illnesses. Complaining in church spreads like pink eye in the nursery. Miriam must have been the leading rebel. She's the one who gets punished, and yet it shakes up Aaron too. Then Aaron turned toward Miriam, and there she was a leper. So Aaron said to Moses, Oh my Lord, please do not lay this sin on us in which we have done foolishly, and in which we have sinned. Please do not let her be as one dead, whose flesh is half consumed when he comes out of his mother's womb. So Moses cried out to the Lord, saying, Please heal her, O God, I pray. God hears Moses' request, and he heals his sister, but not without making his point. Guys, racial prejudice is a leprous spot on the body of Christ, as is all forms of prejudice and pettiness. Now I want you to hear this. If a leader, if a pastor, if this pastor is unbiblical in his teaching or immoral in his living or unethical in his handling of people and money, then he needs to be criticized. He needs to be called out. But when the issues are nothing but personal preferences... They shouldn't be issues. Support your pastor. Not, don't criticize him. If you've got a personal bias, get over it. We need to all pull together behind our leaders and be the church that God desires. Verse 14 tells us, Then the Lord said to Moses, If her father had but spit in her face, would she not be shamed seven days? This was a way that they disciplined kids back in ancient times. The parent would just spit in the child's face. And this brought shame on the child for seven days. 
Now, nobody try this when you go home. You might get misunderstood. But God is saying to Moses, hey, yes, I'll heal Miriam, but let me discipline my child. He says, let her be shut out of the camp seven days. That's the the period of shame. And after that, she may be received again. So Miriam was shut out of the camp seven days, and the people did. She was put in timeout for seven days. And the people did not journey on till Miriam was brought in again. And afterward, the people moved from Hazaroth and camped in the wilderness of Paran. They're still moving north. In chapter 13, Israel arrives on the outskirts of the promised land. They camp at a border town known as Kadesh. And Moses sends 12 spies into the land of Canaan. Verse 1. And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Send men to spy out the land of Canaan, which I am giving to the children of Israel from each tribe of their fathers. You shall send a man, every one a leader among them. And the twelve spies are listed for us in the next several verses, verses 3 through 15. But I want you to note only two of these names ever get mentioned again. Hoshea from the tribe of Judah and Caleb from the tribe of Ephraim. And in a moment, we'll find out why. The men who refused to trust the Lord ended up drifting off into obscurity. This is the only place you read of their names. Verse 16, These are the names of the men whom Moses sent to spy out the land, and Moses called Hoshea, the son of Nun, Joshua. The name Hoshea means salvation, but the name Joshua means Jehovah is salvation. Apparently, Moses changed Yoshea's name to Joshua. Then Moses sent them to spy out the land of Canaan and said to them, Go up this way into the south and go up to the mountains and see that the land is what the land is like, whether the people who dwell in it are strong or weak, few or many, whether the land they dwell in is good or bad, whether the cities they inhabit are like camps or strongholds, whether the land is rich or poor, and whether there are forests there or not, be of good courage and bring some of the fruit of the land. Now the time was the season of the first ripe grapes. So they went up and spied out the land from the wilderness of Zin as far as Rehob near the entrance of Hamath. Rehob was west of the Sea of Galilee near the Mediterranean. So it was kind of north uh, western Israel. And they went up through the south and came to Hebron, which was in the southeast part of Israel. Ahiman, Shashiah, and Talmiah, the descendants of Anak, were there. Now Hebron was built seven years before Zon in Egypt. Obviously, they went out throughout all the land of Canaan, from the northwest to the southeast. Then they came to the valley of Ishkol, near to what would later be called the land of the Philistines, near to the Gaza Strip today. And there they cut down a branch with one cluster of grapes. They carried it between two of them on a pole. They also brought some of the pomegranates and figs. And this bounty testified of the land's prosperity, its fertility. The place was called the Valley of Ishkal. The word Ishkal means cluster. Because the cluster which the men of Israel cut down there, and they returned from spying out the land after 40 days. The reconnaissance took them 40 days. Verse 26. Now they departed and came back 
to Moses and Aaron and all the congregation of the children of Israel in the wilderness of Paran at Kadesh. They brought back word to them and to all the congregation and showed them the fruit of the land. And this is basically what they reported. We got some good news and we got some bad news. First, the good news. Then they told him and said, We went to the land where you sent us, and it truly flows with milk and honey, and this is its fruit. And they showed them those grapes, those clusters of grapes and pomegranates and figs. Wow, what a prosperous land this was. Canaan was indeed a land of plenty. But here comes the bad news. Nevertheless, the people who dwell in the land are strong. The cities are fortified and very large. Moreover, we saw the descendants of Anak there. The Amalekites dwell in the land of the south. The Hittites, the Jebusites, and the Amorites dwell in the mountains. And the Canaanites dwell by the sea and along the banks of the Jordan. And the report made them all uptight. In other words, there's no vacancy in this land. This land is teeming with ites. Mighty ites. Amalekites and Hittites and Jebusites and Amorites and Canaanites. And these residents won't take well with the idea of some Israelites moving into the neighborhood. Verse 28 is the showstopper for these Hebrews. Nevertheless, the people who dwell in the land are strong. The cities are fortified and very large. Moreover, we saw the descendants of Anak there. And in verse 33, the descendants of Anak are called giants. And the Hebrew word for giant is Nephilim, which is the same word used in Genesis chapter 6, verse 4, to describe the offspring of the sons of God, who we identified when we studied Genesis as angels, probably fallen angels, and the daughters of men. And I personally believe that this was the same thing going on later that happened before the flood when these Nephilim, these fallen angels, these demons, possessed human men and sired through the daughters of women these mutant humanoids, these superhuman freaks, these race of giants. We talked about that. We talked about God in an attempt to keep the human gene pool pure, having to wipe out all of humanity. That's what the flood of Noah was really all about. He wanted to save humanity from this sort of genetic contamination. Evidently, this behavior was not as rampant after the flood as before, but the evil did occur occur locally from time to time, especially among people steeped in the occult, which would have certainly included these pagan and idolatrous Canaanites. This is why God will tell Joshua later to kill the inhabitants of the land, for he wanted to stop the spread of this perversion that had started back up again in Canaan. It's, even, it's interesting that even later, after the conquest of the land, Joshua 11, verse 22, tells us that the giants who survived this purge, they settled in three Philistine cities, Gaza, Gath, and Ashdod. And guess who comes later from the city of Gath? 
the most infamous giant of all, Goliath of Gath. Apparently, he was one of these Anak, one of these sons of the fallen angels and the daughters of women. Well, obviously, the presence of giants in the land caused concern among the people. Fear spread through the ranks. The murmuring was ratcheted up. And that's when Caleb speaks up. Verse 30. Then Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, Let us go up at once and take possession, for we are well able to overcome it. Don't you admire this man's courage and faith, bravery? Caleb had his eyes fixed on grapes, not giants. He was speaking from faith, not fear. Caleb believed that God would assure the victory. And who was right in their assessment? The ten or the two? Who was right? The two. Obviously, God agreed with the minority, not the majority. The two, not the ten. This is why you always need to be careful when you follow the pack. For the pack might not be following God. Verse 31. But the men who had gone up with him, these other ten guys, said, We are not able to go up against the people, for they are stronger than we. And they gave the children of Israel a bad report of the land which they had spied out, saying, The land through which we have gone as spies is a land that devours its inhabitants. And all the people whom we saw in it are men of great stature. There we saw the giants. The descendants of Anak came from the giants. And we were like grasshoppers in our own sight. And so we were in their sight. Chapter 14. So all the congregation lifted up their voices and cried. And the people wept that night. And all the children of Israel complained against Moses and Aaron. And said to them, Egypt. Or if only we had died in this wilderness. Now, Israel is headed for spiritual failure. Their problem is a lack of faith. But who do they blame? They blame the pastor. They complain against Moses and Aaron. Guys, don't blame the leader when you don't have faith enough to follow in his footsteps. They cry and they whine in verse 3. Why has the Lord brought us to this land to fall by the sword that our wives and children should become victims? Take note of that. That our wives and children should become victims. God's plan was not to turn them into victims, but to, into victors. The problem was they lacked the faith to step out and be obedient to His will. And that's why they say, would it not be better for us to return to Egypt? Guys, it is always easier to look back than to press forward. It requires no faith to look back. It requires great faith to press forward. Remember what Jesus said to the prospective disciple in Luke 9, verse 62? He said, no one, having put his hand to the plow and looking back, is fit for the kingdom of God. So they said to one another, let us select a leader and return to Egypt. They're planning a coup. They want to fire Moses and install a new leader. Then Moses and Aaron fell on their faces before all the assembly of the congregation of the children of Israel. And you know, the whole story illustrates the sad plight of many Christians. There are Christians who get to the edge of the promised land. God assures them victory over their sin. 
But they've got to believe enough to obey. They've got to enter in and take possession of the blessings. They can't be afraid of the giants that stand in their way. Giants like peer pressure or sacrifice or persecution or rejection. The joy, the peace, the satisfaction of God is in the promised land. But that land is full of unknowns. Egypt is a land of frustration and emptiness and bondage. But at least it's familiar. And many believers, after being saved from this world and its hopelessness, choose to return to Egypt rather than enter into the land that God has promised them. Guys, don't succumb to fear. Have faith. Don't go backwards. Go forward and enter into the new life that Jesus has for you. It takes faith. But it's worth it. Now this is Joshua and Caleb's message, verse 6. But Joshua the son of Nun and Caleb the son of Jephunneh, who were among those who had spied out the land, tore their clothes, and they spoke to all the congregation of the children of Israel, saying, The land we pass through to spy out is an exceedingly good land. If the Lord delights in us, then He will bring us into the land and give it to us, a land which flows with milk and honey. Only do not rebel against the Lord, nor fear the people of the land. For they are our bread. Their protection has departed from them. And the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. What men of faith. But note the people's reaction. Verse 10. And all the congregation said to stone them with stones. Rather than join them, they want to silence them. Now the glory of the Lord appeared in the tabernacle of meeting before all the children of Israel. Here comes the cavalry. God's glory comes to the rescue. Then the Lord said to Moses, How long will these people reject me? And how long will they not believe me with all the signs which I have performed among them? I mean, remember the ten plagues. Remember the parting of the Red Sea. Remember the bread from heaven. Remember the water from heaven. Pestilences and disinherit them, and I will make of you a nation greater and mightier than they. Moses, I'm just going to start over with you, God says. But Moses said to the Lord, Then the Egyptians will hear it, for by your might you brought these people up from among them, and they will tell it to the inhabitants of this land. They have heard that you, Lord, are among these people, that you, Lord, are seen face to face, and that your cloud stands above them. And you go before them in a pillar of cloud by day and in a pillar of fire by night. Now if you kill these people as one man, then the nations which have heard of your fame will speak, saying, Because the Lord was not able to bring this people to the land which he swore to give them, therefore he killed them in the wilderness. And, and Moses is concerned about God's reputation among the nations. God, you can't do that. You can't start over with me. What will the other people think? You've promised to be faithful to Israel. And now I pray, let the power of my Lord be great, just as you have spoken, saying, The Lord is long-suffering and abundant in mercy, forgiving iniquity and transgression, but He by no means clears the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation. Pardon the iniquity of this people, I pray, according to the greatness of your mercy, just as you have forgiven this people from Egypt even until now. Do these words ring a bell to you? We've heard these words before. 
These words were the revelation of God that he gave to Moses on top of Mount Sinai. This revelation was what nailed down from Moses the character of God. And I think it's interesting. Now in a time of crisis, notice what, God, what Moses refers to. He goes back to God's character. And I think that's important. It's a good model for us in troublesome times. When you don't know what's happening, when you can't see the reason for your circumstances, go back to God's character. Focus on what you know to be true, even when you're looking at situations that are confusing. Focus on God's character. Then the Lord said, I have pardoned according to your word, but truly as I live, all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord because all these men who have seen my glory and the signs which I did in Egypt and in the wilderness and have put me to test to the test now these ten times and have not heeded my voice, they certainly shall not see the land of which I swore to their fathers, nor shall any of those who rejected me see it. That's interesting. It took God ten plagues to deliver Israel from Egypt. And it took Israel ten acts of unbelief to forfeit the blessing of the promised land. Call it the ten wonders of God and the ten blunders of the Israelites. And you know, Israel is such a lesson for us. For again, it is possible to be saved from sin and yet never experience the life of victory that comes with God's forgiveness. Many believers live and die in a wilderness somewhere between blessing and bondage. They're not in the world, but neither are they walking in God's fullness. Verse 24, But my servant Caleb, because he has a different spirit in him and has followed me fully, and don't you want that to be said about you? He has a different, she has a different spirit in her. While the world settles for bondage, while many Christians end up barren, I want all of God's blessing. I want to fully follow God and fully enjoy every last favor He shows me. God continues, I will bring Caleb into the land where he went and his descendants shall inherit it. Caleb and Joshua, the two faithful spies, were the only two members of a generation who left Egypt to ever enter the promised land. Now the Amalekites and the Canaanites dwell in the valley. Tomorrow turn and move out into the wilderness by the way of the Red Sea. Then the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron saying, How long shall I bear with this evil congregation who murmur against me? I have heard the complaints with the children of Israel murmur against me. Say to them, as I live, says the Lord, just as you have spoken in my hearing, so I will do to you. The carcasses of you who have complained against me shall fall in this wilderness. All of you who were numbered according to your entire number from 20 years old and above, except for Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, and Joshua, the son of Nun, you shall by no means enter the land which I swore I would make you dwell in. Verse 31. Remember what I told you to remember a few verses ago. But your little ones, whom you said would be victims, I will bring in. And they shall know the land which you have despised. But as for you, your carcasses shall fall in this wilderness. In verse 3, they accused God of leading their little ones to the slaughter. But God is the master of irony. 
It's not the children who are going to die. It's the adults who are going to die in the wilderness. The children, the second generation, will live. And they will see the land that their parents could have possessed. They'll possess it for themselves. And your sons shall be shepherds in the wilderness forty years and bear the brunt of your infidelity until your carcasses are consumed in the wilderness. According to the number of the days in which you spot out the land, forty days, for each day you shall bear your guilt one year, namely forty years, and you shall know my rejection. Forty is the number of God's judgment. I, the Lord, have spoken this. I will surely do so to all this congregation who are gathered together against me. In this wilderness they shall be consumed, and there they shall die. And the men whom Moses sent to spy out the land, who returned and made all the congregation complain against him by bringing a bad report of the land. Notice the power of a bad report. You know, the congregation complained. Why? Because they had heard this bad report. When will we realize negativity spreads? Unbelief is like a bad cold. It's highly contagious. You can pass it on to your kids and to your spouse and to your friends. Be careful who you expose a bad attitude to. And because of the bad report brought by the ten spies, a plague comes against them. For those very men who brought the evil report about the land died by the plague before the Lord. But Joshua the son of Nun and Caleb the son of Jephunneh remained alive of the men who went to spout the land. Verse 39. Then Moses told these words to all the children of Israel, and the people mourned greatly, and they rose early in the morning and went up to the top of the mountain, saying, Here we are, and we will go up to the place which the Lord has promised, for we have sinned. Then Moses said, Now why do you transgress the command of the Lord? For this will not succeed. And now that God has already cast judgment on them, the people decide they want to be obedient. And the day before, God would have been with them, but now it's too little, too late. Moses warns them, Do not go up, lest you be defeated by your enemies, for the Lord is not among you. What a difference a day makes. For the Amalekites and the Canaanites are there before you, and you shall fall by the sword because you have turned away from the Lord. The Lord will not be with you. But they presumed to go up to the mountaintop. Nevertheless, neither the ark of the covenant of the Lord nor Moses departed from the camp. In other words, they headed into battle without the Lord. They were going for the Lord, but they were without the Lord. Then the Amalekites and the Canaanites who dwelt in that mountain came down and attacked them and drove them back as far as Hormah. Now here is the huge difference between a venture of faith and a venture of flesh. Faith takes God at His word. Faith responds to God's promptings. Flesh presumes that my will is God's will. And tries to accomplish my desires in God's name. There's a difference between the two. Faith is blessed by God. God goes with faith and faith wins victories. Flesh is destined for failure. 
When you go in the power of the Holy Spirit, then you experience God's victory. When you go in your own power, in the power of the flesh, you're destined for defeat. In the end, the Hebrews feared the obstacles more than they feared the Lord. You know, it's been said, our problem is not the greatness of our troubles, but the littleness of our spirits. And only Joshua and Caleb focused on the opportunities rather than the obstacles. Only two men saw the grapes rather than the giants. When you're facing giants in your life, you too need to fix your eyes on Jesus Christ. Well, this is how you turn a two-week walk into 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. The longest detour you'll ever take is the fork of unbelief. Doubt and disobedience create a detour. Guys, it's faith that receives the reward. Are you among the ten? Are you among the two? Father, thank you tonight for your word. We thank you, Lord, for the challenge and the encouragement that it brings. Help us, Lord, to not be like the ten who came so far and yet were too little too late. Help us, Lord, not to leave Egypt only to die in the wilderness. Help us, Lord, to press on and to embrace the new life that you've given us in Christ and to not settle for what's familiar or what feels safe to us or for only where we've been before, but help us, Lord, to follow you into a new land and to receive your blessing, a land flowing with milk and honey. Give us the spiritual manna, Lord, that you promise us. Fill us, Lord, with all spiritual blessings in Christ Jesus, but give us, Lord, the faith to fully follow and to not back down and not look back. Work in our hearts tonight, Lord. We love you, and we thank you for your word. We thank you for these amazing chapters. Help us, Lord, to focus on the Lord, not the obstacles. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.